Hello, and welcome to the Belmont Story Project. I'm Nancy McMenemy McComb, and today is June 13th, 2019. I'm here with Dr. Aviva Brescher, who has come in to tell us about her memories of the 1969 lunar landing, and also about her work at MIT, where she analyzed some of the rock samples brought back from the moon. So thank you very much for coming in today. And thank you for having me today. Um, I was going to start with um, my connection to Belmont, okay. where we have lived in the same house on Madison Street for 45 years now, mm -hmm. where our children grew up, went through the school system. Mm -hmm. um, and we were happy to be close to Harvard Square, the center of our universe, and to MIT, where we worked for many years. Mm -hmm. And when I taught at Wellesley, was also very convenient. And we love Belmont. Okay. I think um, aging in Belmont is a privilege. Okay. Well, Although our you. children live in California, and that's where we winter now. Right, right. You yeah. have a connection both to Belmont and to yeah, California. Yeah, and children. So, yeah, so. we'll talk about that a little bit. All right, well, thanks again for coming in. And um, I guess going back to 1969, what do you remember about the, the lunar landing in and July? 1969, the summer, was a watershed year for me because I was leaving MIT after getting two degrees and starting my doctorate, and we, everybody was excited about the moon missions. It was a very turbulent time, you know, still with Vietnam and lots of protests, but this took us toward the sky, mm -hmm. looking up into the future. It was very exciting. And um, everything stopped, and everybody watched on the TV. Armstrong ta taking a small step for man and a large step for mankind. Mm -hmm. There had been lots of other missions to the moon, and we were all aware of the space race. And even though I was in solid state physics and worked at National Magnet Lab at MIT, as soon as I got to UC San Diego and had to transfer and start a PhD there, mm -hmm. I went into space sciences and found unbelievable scientists, um, two Nobel Prizes who were on my doctoral committee, each of whom had a different theory of the formation of the solar system and what the moon means for it. So you were kind of on a science track at MIT. Were you influenced by um, the space race and what was going on in terms of once you got to Everybody San Diego? was reading about it, and it was the most exciting thing happening at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, my husband was in astrophysics. He thought a grand scale, the universe. Mm -hmm. But for me, the moon, the planets, asteroids and comets, and the Earth were all connected. Mm -hmm. And that's what my main interest was. Okay. And um, the PhD thesis topic I picked um, had to do with the early solar system history, which led to formation of the asteroids and comets and planets, and which bombarded the moon mm -hmm. and caused all those craters that we saw. Okay. So. It was very exciting to look at very primitive meteorites that have 
ages of 3.8 billion years or 4.2 billion years close to the formation of the solar system and try to figure out how they got to Earth mm -hmm. and how the moon was bombarded and when. So the, it was incredibly inspiring, mm -hmm. um, fantastic time. And when actually the Russians had already brought back samples from the moon, the Russians had a lot of lunar missions that were robotic, not manned. Really, in the 60s? And the U.S. had had several surveyors land on the moon. So it wasn't such a novel thing. There had been lots of launches. Okay. But this was the most powerful rocket. If you ever go to Cape Canaveral to the shuttle museum, mm -hmm. take a look at the size of the Saturn V rocket that took people to the moon. It's mm -hmm. the largest thing ever built here. And you've and, seen it. I yeah, and I doubt that we're going to uh, revive that type of launch history. Okay. Yep. Everything was fraught with risk. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody understood that this is a risky business, but the scientists were so optimistic. Mm -hmm. And all 24 astronauts who went to the moon had been trained by scientists from MIT, like Gene mm -hmm. Simmons, or like Gene Shoemaker from Caltech. Mm -hmm. All of these astronauts had been taken to meteor crater in Arizona and had to climb through the dust and had to figure out how to move in a gravity that's one sixth that of the earth mm -hmm. and not to jump too high. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it, the surveyors identified the best landing sites. Mm -hmm. And um, the photographs that were taken from the lunar command modules and the orbiters were perhaps even more significant than the range of the sampling on the moon. Um, Although the they tried in each mission to go either to a, what's called lunar maria, which are possibly volcanics in the craters and very dense, okay. or to the very light lunar highlands and pick the breccia soils. Breccia means rubble, basically, okay. um, from impacts. And the wonderful thing that was done is to have what's called consortium studies of a boulder. When a rock was brought back, Geochemists look at it, mineralogists looked at it, petrologists, people who dated rubidium strontium dates. And I worked on physical properties, magnetic and Mossbauer data. Okay. But we had to get a coherent story of what happened to this rock on the moon and where did it belong in the big picture. Okay, can I back you up a little bit? You spent some time in the late 60s up into about 71 at MIT and then transferred over when you were getting your PhD and doing some postdoc work to okay. UC um, My San PhD Diego. was 69 to 72. I had okay. to do it in three years in La Jolla from okay. A to Z. Okay. <laughs> Did you feel like um, were both areas equal hubs in terms of being in the thick of things with the, you know what was going on with well there had a, 
Apollo 11 samples came to UC San Diego and were studied by one of my advisors on my committee and others in okay. terms of the history of bombardment on the lunar surface. Okay. So I had seen the moon samples in La Jolla, okay. but not allowed to touch them. Ah, uh, okay. I and worked on primitive meteorites in La Jolla. Okay. But when I came to MIT, yeah. I became a NASA PI, and this award recognizes 10 years of being principal investigator. I put in proposals, got my own samples, and they were locked at night in a safe. And the guard would come by three times a night, and they were so precious mm -hmm. that even every milligram of dust had to be accounted for. Wow. So my work was non-destructive measurements. Okay. I didn't have to break them, dissolve them, or anything. And so I got very nice set of samples from all the missions, mm -hmm. representative. And then I compared the magnetic history in locked in them with meteorites of all types okay. to try to find out if they came from the same place, how did they differ, and what does it reflect about the moon history that's special? Okay. Can you sum up for maybe a, a lay person what, you know, and it may have been many things because you were there for so long, but what, what did you find from all that experimentation? Um, I, I had a model of lunar magnetism. Okay. That and was so due that's to shock. Some papers published. When, when a big impact comes, it aligns all the pure metal particles that are very tiny, and they freeze as the rock cools. And the, the, the history of impacts on the moon Can was locked yep. in these samples. Okay. So, and the mascons, the, the big mass bulges at the bottom of each crater that was created by an impact has especially the kind of good magnetic memory in it. It's like basalt samples from volcanoes on Earth. Okay. So I had lots of students. Well, this is an example of a consortium study of a boulder with the USGS people. Okay, see. And um, US Geological Survey. And these are examples of independent work that I did at MIT on moon rock chips from all the missions through Apollo 17. Okay. Each mission uh, gave me an opportunity to, yeah. to contribute. Right. So it sounds like all of this experimentation and science came along at just the right moment for you, right? Because that, that was your interest. Well, I think it's the high point of my professional life. Yeah. And when I came back to MIT, my advisor on a master's thesis was director of the National Magnet Lab, let me go do measurements in their field-free room, completely mm -hmm. shielded so that we knew that when we measure is really a moon rock and not contamination from mm -hmm. the earth or from a passing subway or, you know, your metal pipes. Mm -hmm. So um, MIT had, at the time, incredible facilities mm -hmm. and fantastic opportunities because earth and planetary science was such a strong department and almost everybody was able to work on the big things. Mm -hmm. And so you ran your own lab there eventually? Yeah, I yeah. had a lab in a building, Building 24, and I had 
lots of students. I try to train them and publish with them. And um, this is an index of the proceedings of Lunar and Planetary Science Conferences that were held in Houston every January mm -hmm. and was called the Lunar Rock Festival. <laughs> it, every astronaut in the mission would come and report to the scientists mm. what they sampled, how they sampled, what they observed. And so first we got a debriefing at every conference, and then the scientists came in with their interpretations. Mm -hmm. And um, So you met some of the astronauts? Did you meet most of them? Yes, you know, right now we have in Houston, uh, the Galveston, Texas, actually, uh, the Lunar Science Institute, over 800 pounds of moon rocks sitting Still. there mm -hmm. and waiting for money to analyze them. Huh. The money ended after 10 years. Yeah. NASA ended the program, mm. and people had to move to other things wherever the money was. Yeah. And that's very sad. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot more to be learned. And um, th if there were money, we, we do have enough trained people who could unlock even more secrets. Right. What would you, do you have specific hopes for where, you know, besides adding more money so that that science can happen, you know, do you have specific hopes for where we would go? My hope was that the U.S. will get smart and do what lunar rovers did so well and what Mars rovers did and go to robotic missions because mm -hmm. man-rated spacecraft is very expensive and very hazardous. And training the astronauts who could be sitting right here mm -hmm. and look on a TV screen and direct the robot to sample yep. something of interest and then bring it back to Earth would be a lot cheaper, and then you can do a lot more with the budget that you have. Okay. And um, sending men to Mars is not my idea of a smart investment mm -hmm. in Wh the future, although it does get some people excited. Mm -hmm. You know, we had enough Mars landers who, that did sampling, and we learned a lot from it. Mm -hmm. Even today on the moon, there, is, there are seismometers that were left from the Apollo missions. There are lunar retroreflectors from which you can measure the ac accurate distance between the Earth and the moon. Mm -hmm. And um, gravimeters, there are all kinds of instruments left there mm -hmm. if we had the money to analyze what they tell us. Oh, okay, so it seems like a missed opportunity yeah. to you, yeah. So all of us had to recycle. I moved to transportation. Yeah, yeah I, you moved to I, um, I went into technical consulting. I helped locate mm, the nuclear power plant at Cape Ann mm -hmm. and other nuclear power plants, so they're not on a fault line. I, you know, I, I had to go wherever the money was for research. Mm -hmm and then to go to Wellesley to teach for three years on hard money because times were hard. I see, yeah. Yep. So a lot of people were recycled, a lot of lunar and planetary scientists. Mm -hmm. Very few academics were able to continue what they were doing. Yeah. 
So your first choice would have been right. to stay with uh, yeah. what you were starting, what you were doing at MIT in the first. Yeah. But La Jolla was very exciting because uh, there were lots of Nobel Prizes. My advisor, Hannes Alfein, had mm -hmm. a theory of the formation of the solar system, direct formation from plasma condensation uh, of little grains that grow, grow, grow. Mm -hmm. And I was able to simulate that in the lab for my PhD thesis. And, um, and is that also the do you some magnetic measurements. So I, I had two Nobel Prizes on my committee who were fighting over each other at my long and painful defense. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to have a thesis in two volumes to please them both. That sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and just out of curiosity, do you have do you have a favorite theory out of those two, or have they? Um, I think gone. we still have to be open-minded. Mm -hmm. The call is still out. There yeah. is no definitive proof. There are wonderful theories mm -hmm. that might die with the death of their proponents. I see. So, but so, so they're not so the big bang So what's exciting for students okay. is there's still problems for them left to solve. Right. When I started work, Harold Urey said, he was a famous Nobel Prize. I've worked on this for 20 years, and you think you're going to do this for your thesis? I said, well, I said I'll, maybe I'll ask new questions when I'm done. Yeah. And students have to learn that there is no definitive answer, mm -hmm. that every piece of research leads to new questions mm -hmm. and future research, mm -hmm. which is the beauty of science. Well, it sounds like you you had a career that you loved, um, which yeah. I think is wonderful. I'm curious because you were a, a woman in the sciences, you know, back in the '60s and '70s. Some recent films and books have come out showing that women sometimes had a, a tough go there. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, yeah, it was not easy. When uh, MIT hired an ombudswoman to look into salaries. In my department, my salary was the lowest out of 18 postdocs. And all of were, a sudden, I got a big raise from Frank Press, who became the big science advisor. And what? I asked, I said, thank you for recognizing my NASA work. Yeah. And he said, oh, no, it was the ombudswoman who said for affirmative action, your salary should be on par with that of the man postdoc. Mm -hmm. How long had you been working at that point? Yeah, two, three years. And yeah. I thought that I'm getting recognition for my work. Yep. Instead of which, he said, your husband is a professor in the physics department. You don't need the money. So we thought you'd, this modest salary would be enough. Hmm. It was enough for me to put money down on the house in Belmont yeah, after right. one year, right, but not right, right. really live on it. Right. And you were, you were loving what you were doing, but at the same yeah. time, you, know, you, you weren't being nice paid fairly. That, well, NASA put me on a committee, mm -hmm. but I was pregnant. And they said, you have to come in person to select the NASA grants. And I said, but I don't know when I'll be giving birth. Mm -hmm. They said, well, you have to get off the committee. So I had to go off. And my daughter was born, and then spend the first three months of her life at MIT on my desk <laughs> uh, under a poncho yeah. <laughs> until I found a babysitter willing to take a three months old. <laughs> wow. So it was not easy. It was, right. And when I t 
taught at Wellesley. I gave birth in August 5, and I had to start teaching two courses and two labs on September 1st. So it was rough. And without my supporting husband, an excellent babysitter, and couldn't have done it. Yeah. And um, excellent mentor at MIT. My mentor, Melly Dresselhaus, an institute professor, just died last year. Mm -hmm. But um, I did have a support system. Mm -hmm. And I tried to help women students and encourage them to keep the pipeline open. Mm -hmm. And um, Wellesley hated me because I took their brightest students and I brought them to MIT <laughs> or to Harvard <laughs> or to Stanford <laughs> because they had an exchange program with MIT. Right, but right. it was kind of one way. Where did you go to college? Uh, me? I went to Boston University. Um, and then I got a master's in psychology from Leslie University. And then I decided wasn't quite right, um, so then I went and got a master's in library and information science at Simmons. Nice. And then I eventually landed here in Belmont um, very happily. That's so, great. Yeah, yep. so not, not as science-y, but, yeah. um, but definitely enjoyed my Well, academics. I must say it's good to go away because MIT was gray, was high pressure, was serious, was work nonstop around the clock. And as soon as we got to California, the students would go to swim every day at lunch, drink <laughs> beer, relax. But I, instead of teaching to do a thesis in three years, mm -hmm. I had to get um, California, University of California dissertation fellowship and the Zonta fellowship that helped me write a thesis without having to be a teaching assistant. Okay. This was wonderful. Uh, opportunity to meet other women in space sciences and yeah. aeronautics. So At the beginning, I went to the Zonta clubs locally, and the, their headquarters was here in Connecticut. I went a, a few times here. Can you say a little bit, probably many people listening aren't familiar with that organization, so what's their yeah. mission? Zonta International is a global organization, and they support women in aerospace, aviation, space sciences, mm -hmm. astronomy, and astrophysics. Um, and not so many in the US get money every year, maybe two or three. Mm -hmm. It's very prestigious. Mm -hmm. And it's a gift from the gods for people who want to write a thesis and really focus on okay. their topics. Gotcha. They give you it's enough hard money to, to get it right. Mm -hmm. It's very competitive. And, um, and that group gave you an award? Is that right? I know you have a pin among yeah. the memorabilia. So what was but, the award You know, I, I can't afford to go to their international conferences. There are a lot of rich women who donate money or time to this organization mm -hmm. in the memory of Amelia Earhart. Okay, so what's the connection to Amelia Earhart? Um, that it's just um, in honor of her After that they started? After she died, she inspired, and there were other women pioneers in aviation, mm -hmm. and they broadened the scope of the fellowship mm -hmm. to include all aviation and space sciences, mm -hmm. and get qualified women recognition, and you g have to give some lecture and meet other people, mm -hmm. and 
So they've been a support to you personally, yes. too. Yes, yeah. uh, and it's wonderful that she comes from Massachusetts and has such deep roots here, you know. Oh, her, I didn't know that. Oh, they that. lived on Cape Cod. You have to read her history. Okay. It's a wonderful history. Yeah. You know, maybe you invite somebody who wants to give a lecture about it mm. and inspire some of the high school students. Yeah, yeah. Given your long career and successful career in sciences, what would you do? You have anything you'd say to encourage young people, you know, or any thoughts on you know the importance of science? I would say to be open-minded and versatile. Mm -hmm. That one interesting thing leads to another. Mm -hmm. Um, What we got, and I can email that Mm -hmm. in terms of recognition, an asteroid brochure was named for my husband and me. Uh We have asteroid 4242 brochure. I can send you the citation. And it's a wonderful recognition Mm -hmm. to have an asteroid named for you thanks to contributions you've made to a field. And uh, there is a lot going on in the Boston area and the Harvard Observatory, the BU observations every Wednesday night when it's clear. Mm-hmm. Um, the Agassiz Observatory, that's a lot, a lot of opportunities. Locally, yep. And I don't know how many young women have the courage to go into this field that's not so well funded mm-hmm. as opposed to biology or medicine or mm-hmm. something that our law mm-hmm. that gives more immediate return. Yeah. But if you're flexible and versatile and use the basic knowledge mm-hmm. in physical sciences to do other things, mm-hmm. I applied magnetism and electromagnetism and transportation. So I worked on maglev trains and advanced transportation and I worked on space safety mm-hmm. because the Department of Transportation got the portfolio for commercial space launches okay. safety mm-hmm. and so my first duties when I went to work for the DOT National Transportation Center in Kendall Square was to write the report cradle to grave on the risk of commercial space launches and that became the Bible to teach what's called range safety officers who can destroy a rocket if it goes off course, mm-hmm. of how to safely return things and how to pay attention to safety in every, not just on the launch, but also in orbit and when it comes back to Earth. The, at DOT, we put a lot of risk assessments in the congressional record mm-hmm to make sure that commercial space launches like Elon Musk's companies right. or Virgin mm-hmm. can now send people up into right. space so safely. They, they can yeah. use that science yeah. uh, that was funded by the government uh, right. to, to make their commercial enterprises work. Wow. So um, that's fascinating. I did a lot of space work in, in Houston. And yep. so, um, this is one of your awards. We'll put a picture yeah, up this as well was a, from NASA. After 10 years of working with them, they gave us a little token recognition. Yeah. So Robert Frosch was one of the most enlightened administrators who realized that without these people mm-hmm. that propped up NASA with good scientific solid studies, just yeah. launching astronauts into space and bringing rocks to Earth is not enough. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot that stands on the shoulders of of you and all the people that that did that work. So it's a privilege, really, to have worked on that. And I I had a lot of papers on 
in every Lunar Science Conference proceedings, yeah. and I designed the covers for the Physical Sciences uh, volume that I helped edit, I think only three years. But these conferences went on for 10 years, mm -hmm. starting in 69, yeah. and that's why recognition came later. Um, because then they learned how to apply what they learned for the moon to Venus, to Mars, okay. to other planets, you know, missions to the outer planets. And the people I worked with in La Jolla conceived of missions to comets and asteroids that happened only in the past couple of years. Yeah, wow. So it took that it long. It takes time, right? It takes time. Right. Alfane and Tip O'Neill, uh, not uh, Tom O'Neill from uh, Princeton, not not our congressman. Not ours. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's um, that work. Yep. They uh, conceived of these sample return missions and mm -hmm. observational missions to see very primitive bodies in the solar system. Mm -hmm. And our asteroid is beyond Mars, between Mars and Jupiter. Yeah. And luckily, it's not an Earth-crossing asteroid that mm. can endanger okay, so us. Right. right. <laughs> and my husband gave a lot of lectures on comets. Mm -hmm. We went on cruises, and we gave joint lectures for the Halley Comet. You know, whenever a big comet uh, mm -hmm. visited, um, we were invited to lecture on a cruise, which is nice. Yeah. We got to see a lot of nice places. That's great. Right. Um, so one other one other piece of memorabilia that you brought um, that I'd love to to say um, this yeah uh, so it looks sort of like a dagger. This was the Zonta Fellowship gift that okay. was given to me by the mechanic who repaired last Amelia Earhart's plane before okay. she took off and disappeared. Okay. Wow. And she had trouble with her propeller. Mm -hmm. There were two people on the plane, and um, they had to stop, and uh, he did his best to repair the plane. Mm -hmm. But in those days, in 1937, radio communication was very primitive. Mm -hmm. Navigation and location was primitive. There was no GPS, and they lost contact. But he kept these pieces of the propellers, and made this letter opener. Mm -hmm. And Zonta must have paid him very nicely. This came with a certificate of authenticity. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, somewhere in I have, all that. It's yeah, I have a lot yep. of memorabilia from this award. Yeah. And there were, it's a very festive occasion. You know, there is a Zonta club. There is a Zonta song. There is a wonderful dinner. There are great photographs and publicity in the local papers, uh, yeah. journal where my fellowship was announced and yeah. my pin. What year did so that happen? So we moved a lot of yep. times, and this came with me across the country a Absolutely. couple of times. I can see why it matters to you. <laughs> it's sitting in the attic. Hopefully my children and my granddaughters will one day look at this yeah. and get inspired. Absolutely. No guarantees. <laughs> well, thank you very much but for bringing all that But it was fun, in. and thank you for this opportunity for me to dig this out yeah. and try to remember those years. This was a 1971 fellowship, okay. and um, there were two 
missions in 69, two in 71, and two in 72. And I had samples from all these missions mm -hmm. through Apollo 17 um, that I worked with others on. And it was nice to hear other perspectives and try to come up with a coherent story and history. Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds all very fascinating, and we really appreciate your coming in today to, to give us your memories, which are really unique and special. And this is a great uh, thing you're doing here. I look forward with, to do your big release okay. of all of these <laughs> interviews. Okay. Um, we watched every mission on television. Yeah. Um, one of them we watched on a public market in um, Ericia, Sicily, where my husband was running a workshop one time. Mm -hmm. um, which, but which, which one was most memorable to you? Do you think the, the, the first I one? I think the first the launch was the most memorable. Yeah. You know, people thought it was faked, couldn't be real. Mm -hmm. But looking at how they hopped around like rabbits, you realized that they were on the moon. The landscape was so desolate. Right. Do you remember who you watched with? I know it was 50 years no, ago. No, we were so crossing the country at the time to mm -hmm. go to La Jolla right after MIT that summer. Mm -hmm. So wherever we were on the road, everything yeah. stopped to watch it. Yeah. But I must say that when Nixon uh, abdicated his presidential powers, the Lunar Science Conference stopped dead, mm -hmm. and everybody was watching politics on the big screens oh, okay, yeah. in NASA Houston at the Johnson Space Center where the conference was held. So politics, um, without Kennedy's determination to put people on the moon, this would not have happened. We would have just had robotic missions mm -hmm. following the surveyors. Mm -hmm. and. We developed very nice rovers. By the time Apollo 17 came along, and they had a real PhD scientist in geology from MIT, Schmidt, go and do sampling, they had a range of about 18 kilometers or more that they could cover. Mm -hmm. At the beginning, all they could do is hop around in a small area yeah. without a lunar rover. So you realize how technology improved and expanded the range of exploration. Mm -hmm. And today we could do robotic missions, no problem. Yeah. Cheaply, <laughs> hopefully. Right, gotcha. All right, well, just in closing, thank you again one more time for coming in. We really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing the other contributors to this series.